0: You're listening to Arc radio podcast. I will be laying <laughs> in a shaytan in Rajim. Bismillah, Rahman, Rahim. Layli, Iza Saja, Ma Waddaka, Rabuka, Wama, Colla. وللآخرة خير لك من الأولى ولسوف يعطيك ربك فترضى ألم يجدك يتيما فآوى ووجدك ضالًا فهدى ووجدك عائلا فأغنى فَأَمَّا الْيَتِيمَ فَلَا تَقْهَرْ وَأَمَّا السَّائِلَ فَلَا تَنْهَرْ وَأَمَّا بِنِعْمَةِ رَبِّكَ فَحَدِّثْ صدق الله العظيم بسم الله الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله وعلى آله وصحبه ومن والاه سلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته And Jazakum Allah khairan for being here and being together in this blessed occasion, where we have the opportunity to reflect on a few highlights from the life of the Blessed Messenger, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, the Seal of the Prophets, the best of mankind, the most resplendent of all of Allah's creation, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. May Allah's blessings and peace be upon him, and let us not let the opportunity pass to let the Salah and salam to flow from our hearts and from our lips whenever we hear his name mentioned or whenever we are blessed to have the thought of him in our hearts as we're speaking of some events of his life. And uh, the organizers here Al-Mizan asked me to introduce myself. I have not much to say but uh, you see my name Sohib Saeed and I am also honored to be involved here at Al-Mizan in an advisory capacity and uh, to help inshallah to be among people who are teaching here and uh, to assist this center to do its mission of bringing people closer and closer to the Quran and to be walking Quran's and as we know this was among the most poignant descriptions of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Okay The boys in the front Whenever we say Prophet Muhammad You're going to say Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Nice and loud for everyone Okay And Among the most poignant descriptions Was that he was His character was the Qur'an And who was the person who said this The person who was Perhaps the closest to him of anyone Aisha radiallahu anha And how is it that Many people those who are closest to them are the ones who hold in their hearts at least that oh everyone has this high regard for yeah my wife would tell you like this you know oh mashallah everyone says this about so called Sheikh Suhaib you know if they knew the reality it's something different at home but how is it that the closer a person got to Sayyidina Muhammad the more that they would hold him in high regard the more that they would love him the more that they would recognize his reality was not like any of us. But rather it showed that the closer you got, the more intimate the relationship that you had with him, the more that you would want more and more to get closer and closer. There would not be a stage where you were repelled because having a relationship with the Messenger is like having a relationship with the Qur'an, with Allah's words. And that is one of the main things that always here in Al-Mizan we are focusing on. We are focusing on how to come closer to the Qur'an, to understand it, to live it, and to share it with others. And there is no separation, there should be no separation in our approach between this and having a relationship with the Messenger. And I've said before, and and I, I try to remind us again and again that, These are connected very strongly. And the ayahs that we recited at the beginning in Surah Al-Duha remind us of this, how the Qur'an is speaking to the Messenger ﷺ. And is saying, your Lord is not displeased with you, he is not angry with you, he has not abandoned you. This at a time when the revelation had slowed down or paused and he began to feel anxious. The Qur'an came to comfort him and to soothe him, to reassure him, to promise him. Of a brighter future. So we have two sessions here, and I'm still not sure what we're going to cover in these couple of hours here, couple of hours there, but we have Al Ula and Al akhirah the beginning and the end. And within the life of the Prophet, we have the early part, we have the later part, we have the Meccan period, we have the Medinan. Period. And we have this life and we have the hereafter. That's usually what is meant by the word akhirah. <laughs> the more obvious meaning that most of our minds would go to is the hereafter, the next life is better for you than this life. But that's not the only meaning. It's a promise that in this life the Prophet would be raised in honor. We have raised your mention, O Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, because every time I say Muhammad, the boys in the front say sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and this is just one of the this is just one of the manifestations of how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has raised his mention. That we feel we feel humbled by the mention of his name sallallahu alaihi wasallam. So that as the Quran is speaking to him, when we read the Quran. If we keep this in our minds, when we're reading Surah Al-Duha, or really any part of the Qur'an, but so many of these surahs that we know very well in the end of the Qur'an, Rabbi Kawanhar, Abitar. Who is it speaking to? It's speaking to Muhammad ﷺ. Okay. Many of these surahs are speaking so directly. So when we are reciting the Qur'an, we are enriching this relationship. So we know, of course, and Surah al Duha reminds us how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took this special person who he knew in his foreknowledge was to be this final messenger. And there's no difference in Allah's knowledge between what is earlier and later. Any one of us, we, we know some things and we are unaware of some things. And only when they happen, we find out, right? Somebody is going to be born, is it going to be a boy or going to be a girl? It's a surprise, even if you do the scan. It's a surprise until you've done the scan, okay? You find things out and then it is new knowledge. For Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there's no new knowledge. And that is why he has always known that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa is to be the final messenger, is to be the seal it's to be that final brick in the house of prophethood Which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has been building In this world By sending prophet after prophet Messenger after messenger And each one of them is talking about what's going to come next That there will be others after me And perhaps some if not all of them had said There is going to be a final messenger And we know that for sure about Isa Because and as you know, everyone's talking about Prophet Jesus, peace be upon him. And they're talking about from the perspective of their beliefs as Christians. And we have our beliefs. And we believe in Prophet Jesus, peace be upon him. We believe in him as one of the most incredible, remarkable people whom Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose with his message. And that message was the same message. That message was, La ilaha illallah okay all the prophets said this there is no god except allah only worship allah but at the same time part of his message was also muhammadur Rasulullah. why because in surah as-saf we're informed that isa would speak to his people the israelites and he would say to them that i'm giving you the glad tidings of a messenger to come after me who is called ahmad and Ahmad is the other name of the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi because he is Muhammad and Ahmad. Muhammad means the one who is so much praised. As we said, we have raised your mention, we have raised your honor, so people praise him. He is Muhammad, alayhi salatu and also he is Ahmad, the one who is most praising of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala nobody was um, was more advanced than him in how he would praise Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we ourselves we join in with that when we recite the fatiha we always say alhamdulillah rabbil alamin all praise belongs to Allah when we do that we are we are joining in with ahmad sallallahu muhammad sallallahu in praising Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so a few facts And I'm going to share some points really from a book which I have found very valuable and it is available in English and it's very small and you should get it. It is called The Life of Prophet Muhammad Highlights and Lessons and it's by Dr. Mustafa Sibai a very famous uh, Syrian scholar who was an expert in, in sunnah and seerah. Um, so this is from the International Islamic Publishing House. I, I hope it's widely available. Can you spell the second thing you could so it's spelled so Dr. Mustafa. It's what you probably think M-U-S-T-A-F-A, and then as sibai S-I-B-A apostrophe I-E as Sibai. Yeah. If you have any trouble, inshallah, we'll help you. So what's nice about this book is, it's not very long, but it's, very, it's done in a very point-by-point way. And in each chapter, he gives you a few point-by-point uh, aspects of the, of, of the information. And then he follows up with point-by-point lessons. And those lessons are especially designed for people who are involved in Dawah. Okay, anyone here involved in da'wah? No, you don't know? You are. Because da'wah is inviting to the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you should all have the intention, I'm going to invite to the path of Allah. I'm going to tell people about Allah. And tell people about our duty towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And how wonderful it is to be a servant of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But even if you can't do that as your full-time job, nobody, you know, probably, none of us can do that as our full-time job. But you're doing it full-time with your character. Because either you're inviting to Allah with your character and how you behave and how you treat people and how you represent the message that Islam has taught you. Or, well, I don't want to see. Either you're going to be positive and people will be drawn towards Islam. Or sometimes when people have got Muslim names and then they behave in a way that hurts people, of course they can put people off Islam. Right? So you're either do- doing downward towards Islam or maybe away from. But you can't be neutral about it. You can't just say, Nah, I'm just going to be Muslim and hopefully nobody will be affected by that. Right? So inshallah we have to always think about how do we affect people positively. And when we do that, again we are following in the way of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, right? Because in Surah Yusuf, right at the end of Surah Yusuf, he is told to say, قُلْ هَذِهِ سَبِيلِي This is my path. I invite to Allah upon clear evidence. هَذِهِ سَبِيلِي Adu إِلَى اللَّهِ عَلَى me, I and whoever follows me. Right? So he's told to declare and state this, that I and whoever follows me is on this path of inviting to Allah. Inviting to Allah with clear evidence and with reasoning and upon knowledge. Okay? Allah basira. Anyone here is, is a follower of Prophet Muhammad ﷺ? Anyone? There's a couple of you. I've got one hand. Anyone here is a follower of Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Yeah, a few, okay. Most of us? Anyone is not? You're welcome, if you're not still. We are all. So we are all then. We are all a part of this ayah. Sorry. But you are part of this ayah. I invite to Allah upon clear evidence, I and whoever follows me. So if we want to follow him, we have to follow him and his mission. What he exerted all the effort through his life and all that he sacrificed to spread this message well then the banner and the flag passes on to his followers and there have been people through all these centuries who have kept carrying that flag, who have kept spreading that message and now whether we like it or not it's come to us because we can't sort of say well oh well we're not going to do it then who's going to do it just think about that. Now, before prophethood, the Prophet Muhammad as I said before, was in Allah's knowledge as the one who is, going to, who is going to carry this burden that he had inherited from all of the prophets. Although the prophets have come with their message, but there was always going to be one who was going to carry the banner of the seal of the prophets, the final messenger. And this was going to take this message of Islam into a new phase a phase that is going to last until the Day of Judgment. So as he said, that I am the seal of the messengers, and there is no prophet after me. And he said that the example of the prophets is like uh, a, a beautiful building that when you pass by you would say how remarkable is this building and its pillars and its doors and its arches, but why is there a brick missing in this house? But when the brick is placed, you say, Alhamdulillah, this house is now perfect. And he said, I am that brick. So he was carrying this responsibility. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala nurtured him in a way, and you are probably aware of some of the aspects of this nurturing. How Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala took away certain things from his worldly needs so that his sense of need for Allah would grow all the more, all the more strong, and all the more clear. First of all, the Prophet ﷺ was born amongst the noblest family, among the Arabs, and he was born into the Quraysh, specifically Banu Hashim, and he had the purest descent and lineage. And this is very important, not only in some cultures, especially amongst the Arabs. The idea of lineage and knowing where a person comes from is very important. Right? I was just traveling abroad and whenever someone asks, where are you from? I was say, Scotland. I would say, no, but really? Right? Sometimes it's a bit rude. But what lies behind it is a sense that I, I need to just, I just need to understand where you come from so that I'm at ease with you. Okay? And, you know, nobody can just just exist in a in in a bubble separated from their history yes of course we can if there's something negative in our history we can we can turn a fresh page okay there's no problem with that but we still acknowledge where we came from we acknowledge that story that is in our our past and nowadays you know we see things in a different way scientifically what's in our genes as well or even in things that we don't yet understand physically but that There's an in our blood, you know, and that's that's a way that people have spoken since before they knew about genes. They would say something's in my blood. So the Prophet ﷺ had this was placed in a way that everyone knew who he was, where he came from, and of course, in his lineage, it goes back to the prophets, in particular to Prophet Ibrahim and to his son Ismail, so we have two branches that of prophethood that come after Ibrahim, or Abraham peace be upon him. One of which became the children of Israel, the Bani Israel, through his son Ishaq, who is his second son. But his first son Ismail, there was not much by way of prophethood. But from the descendants of Ismail came the seal of the messengers, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And as you know, the Prophet grew up as an orphan. ألم يجدك يتيماً فآوى. And the way the expression in the in the surah, surah al-duha, it very literally didn't he find you? Didn't he find you as an orphan and gave you refuge? Right? Do you ever think about that? You should stop, you know, just to think about these words. You know, Allah didn't find him. You know, he knew. He knew where he was. He was never out of the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And I'm not going to really explain it. I just want you to think about it. Yeah, because not everything needs to be explained, you know. I don't know how to explain it. How does Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala find someone? But it's an image. It's an image that the Prophet sallallahu himself is being made to think. You know, sometimes you might have thought that you were wandering around by yourself. But you know Allah picked you up from your need and guided you. Even at the times when you thought that you were alone, actually, no. You know, there was one who was watching over you. Alam Fa'awa. And he found you in a state of of not having that knowledge that you needed. To know who is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and how to worship him and how to draw close to him. He found you. Literally, in other places we would translate as astray. And maybe some people translate it like that here. Okay? It doesn't mean the same as it means when other people are astray. It just means that the Prophet ﷺ had not yet been guided into the fullness of Iman. But we know that he was protected. He was protected by Allah from falling into shameful actions. Even before he was appointed as a messenger. And you know when this happened, at the age of 40, at the age of 40, in the cave of Hira. And by the way, 40 is uh, lunar years. So in solar years, that's the age of 39. Because people often tell me, oh, oh, I'm, I'm going to turn 40 next year, because they're 39, and I'm going to turn 40. I say to them, Islamically, you're already 40. And I don't know; they never say thank you. So he lost his he lost his mother, والسلام, uh, at the age of six. But even before that, he had lost his father. So being an orphan, being an orphan, uh, starts even from losing his father, and then you know, in a fuller meaning of being an orphan, at the age of six, when his mother Amina uh, had passed away, and so he went into the care of his grandfather. Abdul Muttalib, and later on, uh, after he died, into the care of his uncle, Abu Talib. So during this time, he was sent out into the desert uh, when he was still um, at the suckling age as a baby, and he spent uh, the first four years of his life there amongst a tribe called Bani Saad, and there he, he um, experienced uh, some of the beauty of desert life. And among those things was to pick up the most eloquent form of the language, of the Arabic language that was available, to develop uh, the skills of life, of bravery, of riding horses. And all of this was part of his nurturing. And he spent some time, of course, tending the sheep of the people of Mecca. And the Prophet ﷺ later said, There is no Prophet who was not a shepherd. And the companions asked, even you, O Messenger of Allah? He said, even me. And he said, I tended the sheep of the people of Makkah in return for a few pennies. So in terms of being a shepherd, I'm going to skip ahead to see if the Sheikh tells us this wisdom of being a shepherd. But in any case, I want us to reflect on on, on, on the beauty of this kind of simple lifestyle You know, and sometimes people uh, Mention to me how, you know Even as believers You know that they might sometimes have a doubt Like about the hereafter Is it definitely an akhirah? Well, I know that nobody here ever doubts anything Ever, right? But they, you know, as human beings, as Muslims Sometimes we You know, the shaitan comes and you know, how do you know this isn't all that it is? How do you know when you die? It just doesn't become dark. And that's it. Right? It would be very strange if we didn't have this kind of Okay, first of all, that's the job of the shaitan. He took that job uh, a long, long time ago. And he has messed with people much stronger than you. But this kind of doubt partly comes because of the lifestyle that we live, right? If you live in the desert and you see the sun rising and you see the sun setting and you see the seasons changing and you see how the animals move and how they graze and and how they, how they, they find their needs almost by instinct Who taught them? Who taught the birds to fly from this place to that place at that particular time and to migrate and to come and find... You know how, how do the bees know to go and you know drink in the flowers and then they carry the pollen and then they actually pollinate the different plants and how does how do the winds carry the fertilizing uh, materials and how how do all these you know how do the how does the water flow from the top of the mountains and come sweet and fresh for us to drink if you live in that environment okay the water bit maybe not in the desert. But let's say in the, here in Scotland, we're not far from nature. When you live in those environments, you would never think, oh, this all came by mistake or this is just coincidence. Right? You would feel how much this is from Allah and how much uh, we are dependent upon Allah. And you would think this is not for no reason. And there has to be a next life to balance this life. But what happens is that when we create a very artificial environment, and we turn everything into concrete, and we change, you know, we create artificial light, this has all happened within the last hundred or so years, we have this sense of uh, self-sufficiency, that we are the masters of the world, okay? كَلَّا إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ لَيَطْغَىٰ أَرْرَآهُ That Truly man transgresses when he sees himself as sufficient, right? The human being thinks, you know, we think we are the masters of this whole creation, right? And we created for ourselves a world of illusions. Darul Ghurur. Darul Ghurur. It's supposed to be the shaitan that, that deludes us. Yeah, but the shaitan also has his agents. Among mankind, well, here I'm not. I'm not being anti-technology or anti-modernity, etc. I'm not saying we should all live in the desert. I'm just saying we have to find a way to remind ourselves of how this world actually works, yeah. And it's not by our hands. So that's the beauty of the Prophet i growing up in that environment. The strength of iman that just comes from that. Yeah, I was talking with some of my friends about their relatives who live in like the sawat region and just out in the mountains and just how simple their iman is it's not complicated right there's a famous story about imam al-razi i don't know if it's necessarily it's definitely true but a famous story that imam al-razi who's the that i work on the translation of he was you know coming into a certain town and um, an old woman asked who's that man over there you know because everyone was surrounding the imam you know, trying to get in there, selfies, or whatever they used to do uh, a few centuries ago. Not selfies. It's a joke. You didn't get it. Right. So they're going there and trying to get a question in with the Imam. So this old woman asked, who's that over there? So he said, that's uh, Imam Fakhreddin al-Razi. He has 10,000 proofs for the existence of Allah. So she said, why would he need 10,000 proofs unless he has 10,000 doubts? Right? So, for some people, there's no doubt in the first place, right? Because of the lifestyle that they lead. So, the Prophet was blessed with this kind of upbringing. And at the same time, he, um, he was shielded, in a sense, from, from doing what some of the other young men used to do. So, there are some uh, narrations in the books of Sirah that when he was a young man, he once heard some singing. In one of the houses of Makkah there was a wedding party and he made an intention to go but then he just fell asleep right he was about to go he just fell asleep just like that and then he was woken up by the heat of the Sun um, there are other uh, occasions and narrations like this but most importantly he didn't join his people in the most serious Uh, mistake or crime and error that they used to do, which was worshipping idols. He was shielded from that because it would never, it it never occurred to him the idea of bowing down to an idol. You know, you have to have gone through a process of becoming really confused before, before that would become possible. Right? It doesn't happen overnight. Right? If people came to you and said, oh, here is, uh, this is an idol let's ask it for some help you know it would be the most stupid thing you'd ever heard but there are people who do it doesn't happen overnight it happens over generations of <coughs> of you know a kind of virus creeping in where the purity of Tawheed is mixed with other things until until it becomes almost convincing right and even when, then when they worshipped the idols they were still aware that these idols by themselves are not able to benefit or harm, okay? And they knew that there is, they knew that there is a, a higher God, okay? So, just to correct, uh, I think I just said that they, they knew they would not benefit or harm. What I mean is in their heart of hearts, they had to recognize that. That's why when the Qur'an is challenging them, it's trying to appeal to their, their deeper instinct, their deeper realization that these things cannot benefit or harm. But in their daily lives, they were treating the idols as if they could bring them some good, or if they failed to serve them properly or if they disrespected the idols that this would result in some, some harm to them and this had happened long before and the Quran brought them the reminder and the example of Ibrahim alayhi salam, their forefather to remind them of uh, you know, the original monotheism that they were expected to return to so the Prophet he never uh, participated in those things he did not Drink what they drank. He did not gamble. He never uttered foul speech or bad language And this is why he came to be known of course as As-Sadiq al amin Right the truthful and trustworthy one And the Prophet ﷺ was known as this Because of his dealing with people Whenever they entrusted him with something they knew that it would be uh, returned to them in the best possible manner, and the famous incident occurred when there was, a, a, you know, a rebuilding of the Kaaba after it had been damaged in a flood. Okay, and at that point, when the the different branches of the Quraysh, different tribes or different clans, had got together, and they had just about finished the rebuilding of the Kaaba. There was one stone left, a special stone. Does anyone know what it's called? You guys? No? A special stone in the Kaaba? It's color? What color is it? Yeah? Black. black yeah, so the black stone. Yeah. Bonus points. How do you say in Arabic? Al-Hajr? Al-Hajr al-Aswad. Yeah, it's just a black stone. So this stone you know, we have the narrations around how this stone came to come from Jannah And how it was originally white But then became blackened as people sinned right? That it came from the time of Adam In any case, this stone has a special place It has a special place in the Kaaba, Right? And you see it now nowadays in this, inside this sort of silver thing By the way, I, I didn't realize until fairly recently Even the black bit that you see is not the black stone There's like little bits inside that That are black stone And most of it is actually just resin Holding the bits of black stone in place And I was just in Istanbul And there's several mosques there Where they say This is a piece of the black stone And I don't know if that's true But I don't like that I think they should return it To the Kaaba I don't know So the black stone At that time they had to return it to its place In the corner of the Kaaba And They fell into a dispute About who's going to Who's going to have the honor? To, which of the clans is going to have the honor of placing it back? And the only way this r- dispute became resolved is when they said, whoever comes in next and enters the haram, whoever enters next is going to resolve the dispute for us. And lo and behold, it was al-Sadiq al amin So they were overjoyed. al amin is here, the trustworthy one is here. So they were all satisfied. Whatever he's going to judge, is going to be the best resolution that we could have so then his solution as you probably heard before or you've seen it in the movies he was he told them to spread their cloak to spread their cloak and he placed uh, the the black stone in the middle of this cloak all the, the tribes raised up the cloak so that the stone would become raised and then at the last moment he pushed it into its place so everyone participated and this was a way that he, um, he showed how he was able to bring the hearts together. And this became so crucial. The Prophet never had any malice or negative intent towards his people. And they knew that in reality. But then later on they would accuse him of things. And that's one of the most distressing things is that when, when people know you, but they still they still turn against you. And they accuse you of things that, you know that they know are false. Right? The Prophet ﷺ always knew that in reality they did not think that he's a liar. And yet it would even get to him. Sallallahu That why are they calling me a liar? And Allah subhanahu wa reassured him at one point. Uh, وَلَكِنَّ الظَّالِمِينَ بِآيَاتِ اللَّهِ يجحدون. They don't in reality call you a liar. Yes, they're calling you a liar, but in reality they they don't consider you a liar. فَإِنَّهُمْ لَا يُكَذِّبُونَكَ They do not genuinely think that you are a liar, but rather they are just rejecting the signs and the ayat the of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So they're not willing to hear the message, so they will shoot the messenger. That's their only recourse. They cannot refute the Quran all they can do is to say some things that they even they don't believe of course they didn't believe that he's a magician had they ever seen him hang around with the magicians a soothsayer was he hanging around with those weirdos over there were muttering babbling nonsense they knew he's the most eloquent one the most intelligent one the the best in character the the most distant from anything questionable right so Of course they knew that they are talking nonsense themselves when they've said he is a liar he is a sorcerer he is a soothsayer he is possessed right but that's just what they had to do it's just what they had to do they they were forced to do it and they probably hated themselves for doing it but it was it was their only recourse in trying to uh, turn away from the responsibility that came with the revelation. So, this, these are some of the points from his early life. His lineage was well known. His uh, his background was well known. It was all open and transparent. And this is important, you know, because reputation, reputation is an important thing. And I think this is, I'm going to mention this because nowadays, it's like, it's, it's as if society is telling us the opposite, right? So, it will tell you like, do whatever you want to do. And, you know, hate is going to hate. And just like, it's, it's, it's people's problem if they've got a problem with you. You just do whatever you want to do. And you know, people shouldn't judge, right? And that's true. We should not be judging other people, right? But at the same time, we should not put ourselves in a situation that would give people cause. To hold things against us. Do you see what I mean? Later on, when it came time to collect the Quran after the Prophet ﷺ had departed this world, and Abu Bakr عنه, uh, became convinced of the need to, to gather all the Quran into just one, one place, you know, and to make a copy that could be depended upon instead of all the different. Uh, copies and different pieces that were scattered amongst the Sahaba right? in a written form so they, they gave this job to Zaid ibn Thabit and Zaid ibn Thabit was one of the scribes of the Messenger he used to write down the revelation upon his instruction and they said to him that you are a young man intelligent and we have nothing we, hold, we have nothing To hold against you. La Nattihimuk. Very importantly, you know, he was, you're young, so your mind is strong, okay, and you are intelligent, and you were one of the scribes of the Messenger, and your reputation is clean. And your reputation is clean. That's very important. We should keep our reputations clean and not just say it's people's problem. If they've got a problem with me, it's their problem. Well, it's your problem as well. Okay, If people have some uh, problem Or accusation against you You should know You should know for yourself If that is false Then so be it Then it is their problem If it's true Then it's your problem Right? So We can see in the example Of the Prophet ﷺ The importance of having this Clean character Clean record Open, transparent life Which meant that People could trust him absolutely, could trust him in every possible way and they knew that he does not have some ambitions to become the most powerful man in Makkah, right? They knew that he's not this kind of person, they knew he's not a manipulative person who's going to use whatever means to get his own desires, but rather they saw him sacrificing for others, they saw him being in service of others and this should be this should be the case of the Darya. and we see even before he was instructed even before the revelation came to him and instructed him to pray in the night ya ayyuhal muzammil qumil layla illa qalila that he was told to to pray in the night but he was doing this before he was doing it even before Because he had something inside him that was driving him. He had a need to draw closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is important because, you know, we have our obligatory actions. We have also our nawafil. And sometimes we do those things from a kind of, um, a sense of just making sure that we are fulfilling our, our tasks. So that applies to the obligatory actions, even applies sometimes to the voluntary actions. Right, we want to make sure that we are that we are you know accumulating good deeds. That's obviously right. That's what we need to be doing in this life. We need to accumulate good deeds, we need to balance out whatever sins we have done, not only with istighfar and tawbah, you know, seeking Allah's forgiveness, but also doing good things to balance them out and to uh, draw closer to Him. But in addition, I just want to say that the Prophet himself was a seeker of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even before he was given even before he was given the revelation before his seeking was, was given that response and I told you of course this was all in the knowledge of Allah before but see the, the value of something when you have been seeking it is not the same as when it is just given to you right? and that's the case also I think we often admire people who embrace Islam Converts or sometimes we say reverts I'm personally not a big fan of the word revert I think it's not very really clear in the English language But converts or people who enter into Islam People who enter into Islam you know. And we often feel and we often say And there's some truth in this That those are people who didn't take it for granted But they are people who, who went in search of something And then Allah blessed them with with the response to that search. Bless them with the answer. Bless them to find that. And so we hope. You know, we, we, we expect and, and we hope that is true. That also they would never come to take that for granted. Right? but How many of us, you know, majority of people here, I guess, have grown up in Muslim families? Okay, it's very easy to take things for granted. And you haven't tasted the pain of struggle. You haven't. Tasted the pain of that confusion Or feeling lost and then to be found Okay, But in reality we, we can all feel that in different ways It doesn't require that we used to be in a different religion Or we used to have no an religion and then we came into Islam We have to be seekers as well We have to, we have to be seeking after reality Right, And a lot of the times I, I, I think about The idea of being a practicing Muslim like anyone here is a practicing Muslim? A couple? Two, three, four, five? Anyone else? I, I, you know, I call myself a practicing Muslim. Anyway, so what, what is it really to be a practicing Muslim? It's very difficult. I mean, it's a very difficult kind of idea and concept. Right? Because when we do call ourselves a practicing Muslim, we kind of, yeah, yeah, I'm there, you know? Oh, so and so, unfortunately, not practicing. Inshallah, Allah gave Okay, so we we kind of think of it as as a on-off switch, right? So you, a Muslim who's non-practicing and then a practicing Muslim, Mashallah. Okay. I'm not saying you know you can do that and not be arrogant, of course, but I'm just saying there's a danger here. The shaitan really loves stuff like that, right? Which sounds so nice, and then Shaitan can just ah, okay, yeah, Mashallah, practicing, yeah. Shaitan is very good at that—just tricking you with words, tricking you with ideas and descriptions and labels that you can apply to other people or that you can apply to yourself. You know, what is a practicing Muslim except just someone who has decided, decided to be committed? Right? It doesn't mean you arrived anywhere; you arrived at the path. Where are you on the path? Could be anywhere, but you've decided you're going to walk this path. That's the most that we can mean by a practicing Muslim, right? What, what is a non-practicing Muslim? I don't know, okay? But someone who has some connection with Islam, but maybe has not, has not made a commitment to walk that path. Maybe that's what it means. We can, we can discuss it later, okay? But, walking that path, walking that path means that we have to have some sense of what our destination is. And I think it's, honestly, there's a lot of people who are religious, but don't have a very clear sense of their destination they don't have a clear sense of who or what it is they are seeking who or what whom or what because ultimately it is to seek allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is to want to draw closer to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and of course there's no contradiction between that and saying to be in his pleasure to be uh, to reach his jannah to escape from what is behind us The hellfire To escape from it and to enter into Jannah There's no contradiction between that and saying It is seeking Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala But seeking Allah is, is, the, is a stronger and more meaningful way of thinking about it So the messenger sallallahu He was seeking Allah He wasn't in that cave, cave of Hira Saying, you know, talking about Jannah asking for Jannah he was he was seeking he was seeking to have Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in his heart and for his heart to be clean of all other concerns of all other connection to the world and the answer to that came in the form of the revelation the answer to that came by this visitation of the angel Jibreel alayhi salam Okay, And it's easy for us because we, we know who it was So when we tell the story, we just know Jibreel came But imagine Prophet has been going to this cave of Hira He goes there for a few days at a time, a few weeks at a time And suddenly someone, a presence comes into him in that cave Who is this? It's terrifying And this, as we know Angel says to him, "What did he say to him?" The boys in the front know. What did the angel say to him in the cave? iqra <laughs> He said to him, iqra which means read, or it means recite, proclaim. And the Prophet at this point doesn't know what is he supposed to read. What is this instruction referring to? So he says, There's different narrations of what exactly he said. But it's around this meaning. I'm not a reader. I'm not a reciter. I'm not what you seem to expect me to be. I'm not sure. In, in, In short, it's like saying, what is it that you're asking me? He's not yet grasped what it is that he's expected to do. And so the angel Seized him very tightly, and grabbed him so that they were like chest to chest. Until the Prophet when he was describing this later, said, "I felt like my my life was going to escape from me. Yeah, I felt like I was on the edge of suffocation." And then he let him go, and he said to him again, "Iqra," and again, "Ma ana biqari," and again, he seizes and releases him. And this happens a third time. And then he recites to him, اقرأ باسم ربك الذي خلق خلق الإنسان من علاق اقرأ وربك الأكرم الذي علم بالقلم علم الإنسان ما لم يعلم Read in the name of your Lord who has created. He created man from a clot. Okay, min alaq, and there's all sorts of ways to translate alaq, and some people kind of try to give it scientific explanations and things like this. At the end of the day, you know, the baby inside the womb, at some stages, is like a clot. It's, it's almost looks like a piece of blood, which is dependent upon, which dependent upon the mother for its growth and its survival. And alaq, alaq means something which is connected, it's something hanging. Right? So it just it refers, you know, one of the deeper meanings inside min alaq, he created from a hanging thing. Right? It's, it's about our dependency, how we are so small and insignificant and how we depend upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Read, and your Lord is the most generous who taught by the pen taught man that which he knew not. So just as Allah is able to take this clot and turn it into a full human being, likewise He can take one who is unlearned and unschooled and has never known the use of the pen and He can make him the most knowledgeable of all creation, can make him a final messenger. So this is a reassurance to the Prophet. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has this power and He can take you, He can take you from where you are to the highest of heights. So in these ayahs was the beginning, was the beginning of revelation and the beginning of guidance. And with this, the Messenger went back to his family. He went back to his his wife, his partner, his confidant, who was his first wife. Khadija And the importance of Khadija in the life of the cannot be overestimated Cannot be overstated Right, I imagine maybe we have lots of talks about Say- Sayyidah Khadija Yeah, it's very important to understand her role as a role model But not only did she provide a comfort an emotional comfort a garment and a blanket Right? When he back, went back, he said, Zammiluni, Zambiluni, cover me over. Cover me with a blanket. She was herself that blanket. Right? Hunna lakum, right? They are garments for you, you are garments for them. That comfort, that comfort blanket, that comes from that special relationship where Allah places mercy, and affection, وجعل بينكم مودة ورحمة, right? And the, and just before that in the Ayah, سُوَرَتْ رُومَ لِتَسْكُنُوا إلَيْهَا. وَمِنْ آيَاتِهِ أن خلق لَكُم مِنْ أَزْوَاجًا لِتَسْكُنُوا إلَيْهَا. وَجَعَلَ بَيْنَكُمْ مَوَدَّةً وَرَحْمَةً إِنَّ فِي ذَلِكَ لَآيَاتٍ لِقَوْمٍ يتفكرون. So Allah Subhanahu has created spouses from your own selves. Right? Having the same nature as you, but at the same time, complementary nature. Azwaj, right? Zawj, it doesn't mean that uh, the two things are equal, but rather they are completing. Right? Litaskunu that you may find repose, that you may find a home in them. Right? Sakan and sakina, And it's placed between you, love and mercy. Indeed, in that are signs. For people who reflect, so Khadija was this home. He ran home. He ran to Khadija, anha. And her words were so full of wisdom. And even if she hadn't said any words, it would have been, you no, know, it would have been sufficient that she was there for him. But her words were so full of wisdom. She said. There is no need to fear. By Allah, Allah will never disgrace you. You uphold the ties of kinship, help the poor and the destitute, honor your guests, and assist the ones who are affected by calamity. So, she recognized that this man that she was supporting was deserving of every good. And this comes from her yaqeen in Allah. Now, we don't know Where did Khadija get this Yaqeen in Allah? She's not not been there to receive. She has not received a prior revelation. The revelation has just started. And yet here she is saying, I trust in Allah. Allah would not look at someone like you with all the way that you spread goodness to those around you and with all your sincerity in seeking after Allah. He would not then disgrace you. He would not be so unjust It is impossible. That is a very advanced level of Iman. And I say advanced and simple at the same time, right? Because sometimes advanced Iman is like, as we said, complicated proofs and philosophical arguments. It's advanced Iman, but it's also the Iman of, as we said, the people who live that very real and very natural life. And they sometimes see things in the clearest, most simple way which is at the same time the most profound, the most effective statements that could be made. So then she took him to Waraka, her cousin, who was learned in the scripture. And Waraka recognized that this presence who had come to him in the cave of Hira was none other than the angel Jibreel, but he called him by a different name. He said, this is the Namus who came to Musa. The Namus, who came to Prophet Moses. Peace be upon him. Right? So with that was some, was some reassurance. This is not something new. You're not the first one who had this visit. But rather you should recognize that you have been chosen to be on that path. That path of the prophets. So there were others who along with Khadija, Khadija عنها, were his first believers, the first people to follow him and believe in him, Ali anhu, when he was only ten, and his freed slave, Zayd ibn Haritha, and Abu Bakr as-Siddiq, and Bilal ibn Rabah. Okay? So these were among the first people who believed in the Prophet And then came a brief pause in the revelation and we mentioned this earlier because we read Surah Al-Duha Surah Al-Duha came after that pause in the revelation uh, came to an end and the revelation resumed And the Prophet ﷺ began to invite people but at first he was told to invite them quietly to invite them uh, secretly or rather on a more one-to-one basis uh, so he was told to invite your closest relatives. So then we had about three years in which this quiet phase of, of da'wah was being undertaken. And as you know, he faced um, severe opposition from some of his relatives. Okay? In, particular, in particular Abu Lahab okay? and others from the leaders of Quraysh who opposed him strongly. And yet still, there was a gradual growth in the community of believers. And this is before they started to seem to be a threat to the established order in Mecca and of the Quraysh. It was just something strange. Why are people people following this new religion? Why are people uh, saying, La ilaha illallah? Why are they turning away from our idols and our gods? But it was, not yet, it was not yet at a phase where it was seen as a threat. But that time was to come. That time was to come and at that point of course, things became more serious. They used to gather in the house of uh, Al-Arqam, Ibn Abi Arqam. So his house was known as the house of Al-Arqam. Okay? So his name is Al-Arqam, the son of the father of Al-Arqam and his house was called the house of Al-Arqam. Right? So don't forget this name. And we know the famous uh, example where he stood on the Mount of Safa where the Prophet ﷺ stood up and he called to his people and said if I was to tell you that there is a, you know, an army approaching from behind would you believe me? He said, yeah, of course he would. So then he told them that I'm warning you about a day which is coming, the day of judgment, and about the punishment of the hellfire. It was at this point that Abu Lahab said his words that, you know, may you perish. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the, uh, the surah which responded to him. Tabbat yada wa Tab. Perish the hands of Abu Lahab and may he perish okay so as the persecution started to come into play and the believers started to face opposition and attacks not only verbal attacks but physical attacks against the believers then the Quraysh used various uh, strategies not only these attacks but in some cases try to negotiate with him try to plead with him they saw that his numbers were growing, and they said to him, "You know, if if it's money that you want, we can get you all the money that you desire. If it's women, you know, we can sort out whatever you want. You can have the best wives from from our tribes, right? If it's power, we can give you. We can give you a good noble status amongst us. If you just stop creating this problem, you know, creating this problem by dividing us." With regards to our religion, with regards to our idols, our gods. So the famous narration, the famous narration, and I I don't know what to say in terms of as a hadith, what is the the status of the hadith, but anyway, it is famous enough and its meaning is is, um, effective enough. And we've all seen it in the movies that he said, if you place the sun in my right hand and the moon in my left hand, I would never give up this matter until either Allah makes it victorious or I perish in the process. And of course the response of the Qur'an was Surat Al-Kafirun. And Surat Al-Kafirun came in response to those who were saying, yeah, why don't, you, why don't we compromise, you know, one year we'll do your thing This Islam, you know, Tawheed and all of that, okay. And then the next year, we'll go back to our, you know, normal religion. Okay, we'll just alternate, mix and match. Okay, so Surah Al-Kafirun came with a very decisive statement. قُلْ يَا أَيُّهَا الْكَافِرُونَ Not all the way through the Quran, the, the unbelievers are addressed in this way. So it's a very decisive, strong statement. Oh, you disbelievers. I do not worship what you are worshiping. And you're not going to worship what I worship. Right? Of course, that doesn't mean that there won't be those among them who are going to uh, who are going to believe. But one of the meanings of this is that you, as long as you are worshiping the idols, you're never you're not in reality worshiping Allah. وَلَا أَنَا عَابِدٌ مَا عَبَدْتُمْ وَلَا أَنْتُمْ عَابِدُونَ مَا أَعْبُدْ لَكُمْ دِينُكُمْ ولي ديني. I added a ya yeah on the end. Some have it. But in, the, in our it's just a kasra. Because some people don't know it's, it ends with a kasra. Because you have your religion. I have my religion. لَكُمْ دِينُكُمْ So there's no compromise here, okay? There are some things you can compromise on and the matter of Tawheed is not one of those matters, okay? Of all things, the Messenger ﷺ has one job and that is to convey the message purely, clearly and effectively. If he is to compromise in this matter in any way, then the whole matter of religion, the whole matter of messengership has collapsed. There's nothing left. There's no credibility. If they can make a crack in this wall, then the building will collapse. Which building? Yeah, remember? The building of Prophethood. Any crack that can be made in this message would cause it all to collapse. So it was very important that the Prophet be strengthened. Whenever they would come to him with their contentions and their doubts, Allah would send him the words and the spirit he would send him Jibreel, he would send him Quran that would strengthen him and strengthen him against all their different contentions. Whatever issues that they raised, the Quran would bring them the answer. In Surah Al-Furqan. They do not bring you any contention or example except that we bring you the truth and the best explanation. So this was this was the matter that he was struggling with in the Meccan period sharing the message and facing rejection to a large extent and facing opposition facing attacks okay so at this point it reached uh it reached such a stage that it was necessary for some of the believers to migrate from Mecca. So we're still in the Meccan phase of his life and the Meccan phase of the message, but there was a hijrah. Not yet the, the major hijrah to Medina, to Yathrib, which was to become Medina to Nabi, the city of the Prophet. But the first migration was to where? To Abyssinia, to Al-Habasha So he said to his companions, why do you not leave and go to Abyssinia? What is Abyssinia now? Ethiopia, this this area in the east of Africa It's very important to also remember how, you know, where Islam has been and the role of these places, you know subhanAllah The African continent is much part of the early, early history of Islam as is the Hijaz, right? So yeah, most things are happening here between Mecca and Medina and the tribes out here. But it extends into Africa, okay? And the history of Islam, the history, you know, it extends different parts of the world. It extends into Europe, right? Muslims didn't arrive in Europe just like yesterday or the 1950s or 60s, you know, when some of you or your parents or grandparents came here into britain we had influx of muslims you know you heard about islamic spain right and if you were to to look at the number of scholars and you know important figures in islamic scholarship that lived in europe it's really it's really surprising and quite shocking you know we just we recite the quran we recite with tajweed and this tajweed you know we have certain rules of tajweed and the rules of Qira'at. You know, how do we know when this word is pronounced this way and that way? And how do we know the different readings which are also authentic from the Prophet You know, there's a famous, there's a famous um, poem that, pe- that people who memorize when they're studying Qira'at, which is called the Shatibiya. The Shatibiya. Because it was composed by an imam called al shatibi Why is it called Ashatibi? Because it comes from Shatiba, which is in Spain. Okay, it's a Spanish town. Do you know how they spell it in in Spanish? X. It starts with an X. Obviously for us it would be S-H-A-T-I-B-I or with an A. Shatiba or Ashatibi. They would say X-A-T-I-V-A. Okay, so it doesn't look like it. Doesn't, it looks like a khat, a ksatibah, a right? So sometimes we can forget, even the Qur'an that we recite, actually our sanad, you know, when we recite the Qur'an now, you know, if you recited with a teacher or you took from a sheikh, like I did, so I can tell you, this is my sheikh, and this is my sheikh sheikh, and this is my sheikh sheikh, right? It will go back definitely to Imam al And anybody in the same uh, position, if you ask them about their Sanad or their Isnad in the Qur'an, it will definitely go through Imam al-Shatibi. So all of us, our Qur'an goes through Spain. And before al-Shatibi was uh, Abu Amr al-Dani from Dania, another town in Spain. So we have to also appreciate how the, how the geography connects with the reality of our deen. Okay, so from an early stage, there were those who went into Abyssinia and they came back from there. And the Prophet ﷺ would sometimes speak to, so that the children who were born there, or who had grown up there, they had picked up the Abyssinian tongue. And the Prophet ﷺ used to play with them and joke with them by saying some words to them in the, in the Habashi dialect. Okay, not the, the sort of idea of linguistic purity, yes we have to preserve the Quran and preserve the language of the Quran, but at the same time there is so much beauty in different languages and cultures right we shouldn't feel guilty for not being arabs those of who are not arabs okay we shouldn't feel guilty for saying khuda hafiz. is it controversial right because there's a thing there's a thing in the subcontinent a lot of uh, debate over is it okay to say khuda hafiz or not And then we have to replace it with allah hafiz and allah hafiz is not and arabs don't say that so like neither you're being like Urdu, Persian, nor are you being Arabic. He's mixing the two things together. So if you don't want to say Khuda Hafiz, that's fine. But if you say it, it's fine, because Khuda is, you know, Imam al-Razi talks about it. It's the Persian word just referring to the one true God. You can, you can ask about this later if you want. But the point is, you don't have to feel that by not being Arab, you're not part of, the story of Islam, how it has spread, how it has been preserved. This story includes all of us. And Islam came and adapted into different people's cultures and different tongues. And among his signs, in the same ayahs that we talked before about, uh, his sign of creating spouses for you from among yourselves. Then the next ayah says, And among his signs is the creation of the heavens and the earth, and the variations in your languages and your colors. Inshallah, by the way, we're going to go for another sort of 20 minutes, and then we're going to, we're going to stop, inshallah, and pray. So the migration to Abyssinia took place. And around the same time there was a boycott. There was a boycott of the Mushrikeen, the Quraysh uh, extended a boycott against the Bani Hashim. Okay, they boycotted the clan of the Prophet Muhammad and Banu Muttalib. So they stopped trading with them, intermarrying with them, mixing with them, refused to accept any deal with them. And this boycott lasted for two or three years, during which there was a great deal of suffering on the part of the Messenger وسلم, and, uh, and the believers around him. And even those who were not believers. In some of the movies, in some of the movies about the Seerah, uh, in particular the, the cartoon one, have you seen this one? I think it's called The Last Prophet, and it's a cartoon. You don't watch cartoons? There was, a, there was like a cartoon version of the Seerah. Does anyone, see, does anyone know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Okay. So just to clarify something from that, in that movie, they made it seem like it was a boycott only against the believers. Okay. In reality, the boycott was against Bani Hashin. the Bani Hashim. And the problem with that, that uh, mistake is that Abu Talib, Abu Talib was among the people being boycotted. So that film makes it seem like, so Abu Talib was one of the believers, okay, whereas the mainstream view is Abu Talib did not uh, take the Shahada. The uncle of the Prophet did not actually take the Shahada, but he was supporting the Prophet as much as he could due to his loyalty, due to what was good in his character. And the Prophet was immensely uh, grieved when he passed away. you know, and, and, and hoped that the punishment of not accepting uh, the oneness of Allah and, and recognizing the Prophet as a Messenger that this punishment would be lightened upon him due to what he did I don't want to get into that as a point of uh, argumentation but to clarify that So the boycott was against the Bani Hashim and, and the clan of the Messenger So there was of course a, a year there was a year in which many distressing things happened to the Prophet Sallallahu and it became known as, as what, the year? You know all of these answers, huh? The year of sadness. The year. Of sadness. The year of, what's your name? Zaid. Zayd. Okay, I'll find out who your mum is later. Okay, so the year of sorrow, or the year of sadness, al-huzn. Okay. So this was. Not the only year in which sadness happened But there were some specific events One of those was The passing of Abu Talib Okay And this was the 10th year of the Prophet's mission Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam Abu Talib was like a a shield So even though he did not openly um, Declare his belief in the Prophet Yet he would not allow any harm to come to him Right And people knew we can't really get to him as long as Abu Talib is there. When Abu Talib passed away, it was a cause for great uh, anxiety um, on the part of the messenger. And then also Khadija, Khadija al-Kubra, عنها, she died in the same year. And this was something that he never really got over. He never really got over, because as you know, later on he had other wives, and particularly he had a most beloved wife who is Aisha, رَضِيَ Anha. And how is it that this young wife, with so much energy and so much beauty and so much intelligence, she could still feel jealous about a wife who had passed away some years before? But the Prophet was very, very loyal. He was very very loyal and he used to continue to respect and receive the friends of Khadija who used to visit Khadija he used to visit them he used to continue to maintain relations with them because it was a way of honoring all that that relationship and that partnership and that marriage had represented So be- loyalty is a beautiful thing and loyalty is itself, is part of Iman. right? Being grateful for the good that people have done to you is part of Iman. Because that's the same basic impetus that makes us worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right? The fact that Allah has created us, the fact that He has done so much for us, motivates us to want to, to, want to be loyal and to be grateful. Yeah? You could almost summarize the whole of the deen in the word shukr. Gratitude. Either we are grateful or we are ungrateful. What is the word in Arabic for being ungrateful? Kufr or Kufran. It's, it's, it's not necessarily the exact same meaning as unbelief. It's two ways of using the word. But it shows you. It's the same word because Kufr is ingratitude. To disbelieve in Allah, is to be ungrateful to Allah, and the linguistic meaning behind it, as you know, is covering something over. So, in the first place, kufr is covering is, is just covering over the good that you have been given. Right? It is to is to deny is to deny Allah's blessings upon you. So, upon this, the persecution. From the Quraysh intensified. And the Prophet ﷺ went on another uh, mission to a place uh, just a little bit outside of Mecca, which is called Al Ta'if. Ta'if was where the Banu Thaqif, the Thaqif tribe, uh, were living. And he intended to reach out to them and to find those who would support him in this time when he was most in need of support. But unfortunately, this visit. Uh, did not result in what he, uh, what he hoped and what he intended. And as you probably have heard in this incident, when he went to Al-Ta'if, he didn't have boys like this to come and say, Ya Rasulullah, we believe in you, we support you, we are ready to follow you. Instead, they sent out the worst of their boys, okay, who pelted the Prophet ﷺ with stones. And as you know, it was enough to cause the blood to flow and to to fill his sandals. And at this point, the Prophet turned to Allah with the most most need, you know, words which, which indicate the greatest sense of need and brokenness. And what I want you to understand is that brokenness is in reality strength. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala inspired him to turn to him with these words of brokenness in order for them to be a source of strength. Because a person is not strong when they see themselves as as sufficient, and see themselves as not in need of Allah. The strongest you are is when you are with Allah. The strongest you are is when you put your trust fully in Allah. And what happens is that when we feel strong, Sometimes we feel that we don't need Allah, then this is just recklessness. It is not strength. It is rashness and recklessness. True strength is when a person recognizes their neediness and puts their trust fully in Allah. So that is the story that we have seen again and again and we can find throughout the seerah. That Allah Azza wa is guiding the messenger to come fully and more and more fully and perfectly into this dependence upon the most gracious and merciful. So the Prophet ﷺ turned in dua and said, "O oh Allah, to you do I complain of my weakness, little resource, and lowliness before men. Oh most merciful of those who show mercy. You are the Lord of the weak and you are my Lord. To whom will you leave me? To a far off stranger who will mistreat me? Or to an enemy to whom you have granted power over me? Most importantly he now he is most conscious of his relationship with Allah more than anything else. So he said to him, said in this du'a, As long as you are not angry with me, I care not. bika fala ubali. It doesn't matter if people pelt me with stones, if people mistreat me, they they, they, they call me names, they call me a liar. But you, Ya Allah, are you angry with me? As long as that's not the case, then I don't mind if people treat me in this way But only what I need is your mercy If you are not angry with me, I care not, but your favour is better for me I seek refuge in the light of your countenance By which the darkness is illumined And the things of this world and the next are set aright Lest your anger descend upon me Or your wrath light upon me It is you whom we beseech until you are well pleased There is no power and no strength except in you And there was some some light at the end of this tunnel Where he met a particular person called Addas Who was a Christian slave And he he met with him and had an interesting encounter with him Interesting discussion with him And Addas recognised that this is somebody who is speaking words of prophethood And he believed in him And it was at this point, in this darkest moment, when Allah gave him the most wonderful experience to take him out of the pains of this world, even for a time. And this, you can tell from my hand what I'm referring to now, it was it was the night journey, Al-Isra wal Al-Mi'raj. So one night when the Prophet was in his bed in Makkah. He was taken and transported. How does this happen? You know, how to transport? You know, nowadays we're still kind of uh, figuring out, you know, would we be able to build a teleport? You know teleports? Yeah, we, still, we have that all the time in science fiction on TV. Okay, you've seen the ones in Star Trek in the old days, and I'm sure there's new, new ones and new programs, okay? The idea of teleporting is still science fiction. OK, how to transport something in the blink of an eye from one place in the world to another? I can't wait, honestly, if they would invent it. It would save a lot of time. Yeah. Air travel, maybe carbon footprint will be reduced. we don't know. Maybe they will never manage to do it. But at certain points in time, at certain incidents, people have managed to transport. OK? So uh, Suleiman salam. He wanted the throne of Bilqis, brought from Yemen to Palestine And he put out the challenge, who can bring me it? And one of the jinn said that I can bring it for you, before you even get up And then somebody else, and we don't know exactly who it was But someone who had knowledge from the book And some say, it was Suleiman himself replying to the jinn But anyway, the second person Probably not a jinn. It could be a person. The person who had knowledge of the, of the book said, "I will bring it to you, in the twinkling of an eye, like before you even blink." So he did so. And the Quran just describes when Sulaiman saw it in front of him. He said, "This is from the favor of my Lord to test me. Ashkuru, am akfur? Would I be grateful or kafir? Right? Remember we said, shukr and kufr are opposites." So anyway some teleporting went on there. We don't have that knowledge from the book that told us how it happened. Right? But here Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala has caused him to travel from Al-Masjid Al-Haram ila Al-Masjid Al-Aqsa. Okay, so the beginning of Surah Al-Isra, Subhana asra bi 'abdihi laylan min Al-Masjid Al-Haram to al-masjid Glory be to the one who transported his servant. You know the Prophet ﷺ is referred to in a few places in the Quran as the Abd. عبد. Yeah? عبده, his servant, his Abd, his worshipper. And actually if you look at those junctures you would find whenever the Qur'an refers to him as Abd, it's actually when he reached the peak of his status. Tabarak alladhi nazzala al-furqana ala 'abdihi liyakuna lil-'alamina the beginning of surah Kaf as well that's furqan beginning of al Kaf alhamdulillah alladhi You read it every Friday come on alhamdulillah alladhi anzala ala Weiss so hesitate you read surah Kaf every week alhamdulillah alladhi anzala ala 'abdihi al-kitab Okay. So, when Allah Azulah refers to him as his abd This is actually a reflection of His superior status The greatest of all, ibad The greatest worshipper The most perfect, humble slave before Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la. So, here he is granted this beautiful, high status That he is going to go on this journey he's going to encounter the messengers The term used is not on his messenger, but on his, his abd. سُبْحَانَا الَّذِي أَسْرَى بِعَبْدِهِ لَيْلًا مِنَ الْمَسْجِدِ الْحَرَامِ إِلَى الْمَسْجِدِ الْأَقْصَى أَلَّذِي بَارَكْنَا حَوْلَهُ لِنُولِيَهُ min آيَاتِهِ So he's going to take him on this journey from al-masjid al-haram to al-masjid al the furthest place of prostration. And we know al-masjid al-aqsa, it is in Bayt uh, al-Maqdis or al-Quds or Jerusalem, okay, which we have blessed in its surroundings, okay, no one can take away from us the importance of this place. As I told you, the geography is, it means something, okay, the story of Islam is tied up in these places, okay, so he took him to this place, in order to show him, لِنُورِيَهُ Uh, that that we may show him some of our signs so we are going to show him our signs and this doesn't mean just in in al-masjid al-aqsa but it was it means that the signs are going to be shown to him as this journey continues and the other parts of the journey are described in surah Surah al-najm it's funny because i read an article which was Kind of denying the, the reality of the miraj, and they just talked about Surah al-isra, and it's like the person had never heard of Surah al-najm, right? Surah number fifty-three. That's where the miraj is described. Isra, Surah al-isra, miraj, Surah al-najm. Okay, where it describes how Allah subhanahu wa taala had revealed to him and and you know revealed and unveiled things to him. فَأُوحَى إِلَى عَبْدِهِ مَا أُوحَى. Okay. So a, a deeply spiritual mystical if you don't mind the word a very real encounter on a level which was not an earthly level okay so even the ayahs as you read them sort of najm go you know today if you can read sort of najm read with the translation and you will find you know the, 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 just the hints the hints towards the realities which can barely be put into words but the surah is indicating towards them so in this it's all a way of strengthening of supporting of comforting the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam and on this journey you know that he you know he, he met with the prophets there in al-masjid uh, al-aqsa and he led them in prayer to cement his status imagine how exciting it was for them as well and so i think sometimes we think oh what an honor to lead all the prophets in prayer they must have been so excited as well. This is that messenger we were told about and we told people about. Now we get, to, we get to pray behind him, right? And at this point, he is strengthened. He is given this special covenant, which is the five prayers, okay? And the famous narration how it was originally given to him as 50 prayers in the day and night. And then he came down a few of the heavens and Musa told him, come on. Your people are not going to be able to to handle this. And he knew he knew his people would not be able to handle it. And I think he I think he knew us as well that we will not be able to handle it. So the Prophet went back up and it was reduced. If I remember, it was reduced to uh, I don't remember how you know, step by step. It came down to ten and then it eventually came down to five. And at this point the Prophet was not willing to uh, to negotiate any further. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promised that the reward in these five prayers would be as 50 prayers. And that, by the way, is very logical in, in the rest of the Sharia as well. That the reward is 10 times. Okay? Uh, مَنْ جَاءَ فَلَهُ عَشْرُ أَمْثَالِهَا Whoever brings a good deed would have 10 times its worth. Okay, so things are often multiplied by 10. In, in you know, just from Allah's pure fadl and generosity and bounty. So this Isra and miraj uh, symbolizes the status of the Prophet it shows that it, is, it doesn't matter what is happening on earth whether people appreciate you turn away from you but what is your place with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? what is your relationship with Him and the Salah itself is is a kind of mi'raj and maybe one day i will i will share with you how imam razi spoke about this he says as-salatu, as-salatu mi'rajul that the prayer is the mi'raj of the people who have knowledge of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and in all this you know we we have this chance to ascend to him and and some of the scholars made this observation as well in Surah uh, Fatir, at the beginning of Surah Fatir, that it describes the angels that uli aj- ajnihatin mathna wa thulatha wa <coughs> right? Not the other ayah with mathna wa thulatha wa ruba'a. that's about multiple wives. Yeah? This one is saying that the angels with wings in, in pairs of two, right, or you know, in two pairs, or three pairs, or four pairs. Right? So some of the scholars said, and look how the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the salah itself is two rakahs or three rakahs or four rakahs So it represents almost like the wings of the angels, by which a person ascends from, from the lowly existence that we are in, to connect with the spiritual world, to connect with the realities of the higher, uh, the higher creation, and connect to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to connect with the angels to be in their world because we are always torn between these two things we have our physical nature which roots us to the earth along with the animals not in a way of, to be wholly negative about it but in our bodies we share that in common with the animals but with our inner nature, our spirit we share in common with the angels so the salah is our way of cultivating the inner reality cultivating the spirit and ascending in this way ascending from this world and when we pray when we do our salah it is connected with this incident in the life of the Prophet so with that inshallah we will prepare for salah uh, so we'll pause here and inshallah we'll pray and then after that inshallah we resume next week with some of the lessons and highlights from the seerah and